I'm Eileen Alfandari with KPFA News Headlines. Senate Republicans negotiating a $1 trillion infrastructure bill with Democrats say they've reached agreement on the major outstanding issues and are ready to take up the bill. Alaska's Lisa Murkowski is among the Republicans involved in the talks. They, uh, the discussions on the bipartisan infrastructure bill are continuing in a good, productive way, and we're hopeful that we'll be able to, to move uh, to that. A great deal of work that has gone on by, by folks on both sides working in, in extraordinary good faith, and to be able to proceed on this matter, I think, will be important policy initiative, but also good for our process in this body. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has announced a possible test vote that could come as soon as this evening. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said he will require all state employees to get vaccinated against the coronavirus by Labor Day or undergo weekly COVID-19 testing. President Biden is reported that he's going to announce uh, soon that all federal employees must be vaccinated or get tested. Uh, New York State is doing the same, Uh, and we're working with our unions to implement this quickly and fairly, but we want to get it uh, done by Labor Day. And I encourage all local governments to do the same. New infections in New York have climbed more than 400% since the end of June. Hospitalizations have jumped 68% over the past two weeks. Cuomo's announcement came a few days after California Governor Gavin Newsom made a similar announcement applying to state workers and health care workers in both public and private settings. Google is postponing its plans to bring back most of its workforce to the office until mid-October instead of September 1st. It's also rolling out a policy that will eventually require everyone to be vaccinated once its sprawling campuses are fully reopened. CEO Sundar Pichai announced the news to Google's more than 130,000 employees in an email. The vaccination requirement will first be imposed at Google's Mountain View headquarters and other U.S. offices before being extended to the more than 40 other countries where Google operates. But Chai said exceptions will be made for medical and other protected reasons. Thousands of scientists have renewed their call for immediate action to address the climate crisis. In an article published in today's issue of Bioscience, they say that 11,000 scientist signatories from around the world clearly and unequivocally declare that planet Earth is facing a climate emergency. They note that 2020 was the second hottest year since record keeping began and that earlier this year, carbon dioxide levels rose to the highest ever measured. One of the co-authors, Thomas Newson from the University of Sydney, Australia, posted a Facebook video. Based on rising global surface temperatures and increases in greenhouse gas emissions, it is clear we have a climate emergency. We suggest six critical steps to tackle the climate emergency. This includes replacing fossil fuels with renewables, reducing climate pollutants such as methane and carbon, protecting and restoring our ecosystems. Also, he said stopping land clearing, reducing meat consumption, moving away from efforts to raise the gross domestic product, the GDP, and looking at human health and well-being instead, and stabilizing human population growth.
California's electric grid operator has issued a statewide flex alert calling for voluntary electricity conservation from 4 to 9 p.m. today. The California Independent System operator said that with higher than normal temperatures in the forecast for parts of interior Northern California, it predicts an increase in electricity demand primarily from air conditioning use. Officials are asking residents to turn off unnecessary lights, delay using major appliances until after 9 p.m., and to set air conditioner thermostats to 78 degrees or higher. Three quarters of the members of the Israeli parliament have called on Ben and Jerry's to reverse its decision to stop selling ice cream in Israeli settlements in the occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem. In a letter to the Vermont-based ice cream maker, the lawmakers say they were standing together against what they call the shameful actions of the companies. Ben and Jerry's announced the decision last week. I'm Eileen Alfandiri. News headlines return at 3 and at 4. And be sure to join us at 6 for the hour-long edition of the Pacifica Evening News. Today on Against the Grain, we live under capitalism, but what do we really know about it? And how much of what we think we know isn't true? I'm CS. We'll feature portions of a six-part, five-hour documentary film series called Capitalism, coming right up. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Okay, here's an understatement. Capitalism has transformed our world. Yes, the change has taken place at the level of production, labor, commodities, and finance, but also transformed has been how we think, how we understand the world, and what we believe is natural and desirable. Adam Smith, who lived from 1723 to 1790, is credited with articulating capitalism's key elements, but an ambitious documentary series has taken the time to look at what Adam Smith actually wrote, the ideas he had that have in many cases been turned and twisted to serve politically conservative agendas. Putting Adam Smith's ideas under a microscope is just one task undertaken by the makers of a six-part film series called Capitalism, which also examines the ideas of John Maynard Keynes, Karl Marx, Friedrich Hayek, David Ricardo, and many others. It does so by featuring some of the world's most prominent and in many cases radical historians, economists, anthropologists, and social critics, including Noam Chomsky, David Graeber, Thomas Piketty, Yanis Varoufakis, and David Harvey. Today, we present audio portions of two episodes in this series. One is about what's remembered and misunderstood about Adam Smith's insights into capitalism and how it operates, and the other episode that we'll draw from has the title, What If Marx Was Right? 
And we offer you the full six-part series, well over five hours in length, on DVD for a pledge of $240 or $20 a month to listener-sponsored KPFA. In return for a pledge of $20 a month or $240 all at once, you can ask for this six-part, 320-minute series, Capitalism. You can pledge securely online at kpfa.org. That's kpfa.org. You can also pledge by calling 1-800-439-5732. That's 1-800-439-5732. Easily remembered as 1-800-HEY-KPFA. Pledge online at kpfa.org if you can. It saves us money and thus maximizes the value of your donation. Let's turn now to excerpts from the episode of the series Capitalism called The Wealth of Nations, A New Gospel. Le capitalisme engendre une dynamique permanente d'accumulation, de crise et d'innovation. I believe that open markets and free enterprise are the best imaginable force for improving human wealth and happiness. Que les forces sociales et politiques sont les forces centrales dans la dynamique du capitalisme. Did you ever have a moment of doubt about capitalism? Is there some society you know that doesn't run on greed? How would Smith see the economic world around us? I think Keynes would have said the problem is the hole in the economy. Hayek really wrote the road to serfdom as a warning. You always have to be careful with Marx about the one-liners. Blandy, for me, was an intellectual earthquake. I mean, if I had to stereotype Ricardo, I would say he would look like George Soros. Si vous retournez chez Adam Smith, Marx, Schumpeter, vous avez des embryons de mécanismes vous permettant de comprendre la crise actuelle. We were told that capitalism is the product of big thinkers and big ideas. But is it true? How did ideas shape our lives? What is their relation to reality? Can they help us understand today's economic crisis, let alone the future of capitalism? his unpolished, unfinished manuscripts to survive him. And he laid down in his will um, that his two executors were to um, burn these papers um, uh, after his death. But that wasn't enough. Um, and really, almost days before his death, he summoned his executors and said, I want you to do it now. Um, and they sat there in front of the fire and systematically burned all his unpublished manuscripts. What has survived um, was simply two highly polished works, his great theory of moral sentiments and his even greater wealth of nations. of nations which survived the fire has been presented over the centuries as the founding book of the free market system. Many have 
Adam Smith's notes were destroyed in the fire, leaving us with only this book and the interpretations of those who have used it to promote the very narrow view of the market as a science. It's hard to imagine how this primitive smelter in Calcutta, India, has anything to do with the wealth of nations. But work here is following the first principle of Adam Smith's book, Division of Labor, a principle which after Smith's death has been elevated to a scientific law. One of the characteristics of the society you know that I know is the intense degree of specialization which takes place in employments, ranging from the most skilled and complicated employments to the most simple. To take an example, the trade of a pin maker could perhaps, with his utmost industry, make one pin a day. But in the way this business is now being carried on, one draws out the wire, another straightens it, another cuts it, a fourth points it. I have seen a small manufactory of this kind where ten men make among themselves twelve pounds of pins a day. Adam Smith, The Wealth of Nations. So he comes to the conclusion that progress, economic progress, has got everything to do with the division of labor. wonder the division of labor has been treated as the equivalent of a Newtonian law. After all, it has been the engine of wealth creation used in the manufacture of almost every product we know. From a sophisticated iPad to a single pencil. For Smith's followers, the division of labor has become a pillar of the free market economy. millions of people to cooperate peacefully together. We need to understand how it is that a free market works. I know no better way to bring this out than by a very simple example called I the Pencil. This is the only prop I have for this TV show. As you can see, it's a plain yellow pencil. There's nobody in the world who knows how to make a pencil. Now that seems like a silly thing to say, isn't it? This is just the most obvious thing. It's only a piece of wood with a, something black in the middle and a little red tip at the end. What do you mean nobody knows how to make a pencil? Well, suppose you were to start to set out to make a pencil. First of all, you have to get some wood done. Where do you get the wood? You have to go to the Pacific Northwest, probably, and cut down some trees. How do you cut down some trees? You have to have some saws to cut it with. Where do you get the saws? You have to have some steel. Where do you get the steel? You have to have a steel mill. In order to have the steel mill, you have to get the iron ore, and you can add all the rest. But that's only the beginning. This black stuff in the middle that we call lead isn't lead. It's graphite, I think. I'm not absolutely sure. And I am told it comes from some mines in South America. Now, this little red tip at the top, that's rubber. Where's it come from? Well, the major source of natural rubber is Malaya. But the miracle of this pencil isn't that nobody knows how to make it. The miracle of the pencil is how did it get made? What is it that has enabled 
this little elementary transaction to take place. Now, how is that brought about? Is there some commissar sitting in some central office who is sending out orders to these people in Malaya, to these people in South America, to the people in Washington? How is it that they are led to cooperate with one another? These thousands of people who have been led to engage in this simple transaction, not one of them has been forced to do it. Nobody has had a gun to his head. They've all done it. Why? Because each one of them thinks he's better off in this transaction. This is the moral dilemma at the heart of the wealth of nations. The economic logic of division of labor versus the human cost to achieve it. But was Adam Smith blind to this dilemma? Adam Smith is very rarely read. He's worshipped, but not read. I mean, everyone who went to college learned the first paragraph of Wealth of Nations. The greatest improvements in the productive power of labor and the greater part of the skill, dexterity, and judgment seem to have been the effects for the division of labor. Adam Smith, The Wealth of Nations. Not very many people got to page, you know, whatever it is, page 400, uh, in which he points out that division of labor is monstrous. In the progress of the division of labor, a great body of people comes to be confined to a few very simple operations. The worker has no occasion to exert his understanding. Adam Smith, The Wealth of Nations. into creatures as stupid and ignorant as a person can possibly be. A person just becomes a machine. That's a terrible attack on fundamental human rights. And therefore, he says, in any civilized society, uh, the government's going to have to intervene to prevent division of labor. Uh, how many people get that far? centuries, economists and politicians ignored Adam Smith's own recognition of the moral dilemma at the heart of division of labor. Self-interest, his second most quoted principle, suffered a similar fate. Please welcome the Nobel laureate in economics, Milton Friedman. Right. Let's share with the people at home just one of the statements of uh, Adam Smith that you refer to in your book, which, of course, when I want it, I'm not going to be able to... Uh, oh, it's on page two. All right. Thank you. <laughs> By pursuing his own interest, uh, that is to say, his meaning the person engaged in free enterprise, Adam Smith says, he frequently promotes that of the society more effectively than when he really intends to promote it. Adam Smith considered self-interest as the driving force of the economy. But do we know what he actually meant by it? To find out, we must first explore the times in which he lived. So you know Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations. Self-interest and greed is good, and the invisible hand and free enterprise and free markets, etc. All that kind of, he's the father of capitalism. But it turns out, there's another Adam Smith. How many people here have read The Theory of Moral Sentiments? 
And according to Adam Smith, it was his important book. It was his magnum opus. In some ways, that was his magnum opus, and the wealth of nations paid the bills. He never imagined capitalism that he wrote about in The Wealth of Nations could actually succeed without the moral underpinnings, the moral, what he called sentiments, we would call them virtues. Without the virtues of a society and virtues of individuals, they would actually create the base of a healthy capitalism. Well, all you could do is look here and see that The Wealth of Nations and a theory of moral sentiments, Adam Smith one, Adam Smith two, have been disconnected. When you see around the globe the maldistribution of wealth, the, the desperate plight of millions of people in underdeveloped countries, when you see so few haves and so many have-nots, when you, when you see the greed and the concentration of power with it, did you ever have a moment of doubt about capitalism? Tell me, is there some society you know that doesn't run on greed? You think Russia doesn't run on greed? You think China doesn't run on greed? What is greed? Of course, none of us are greedy. It's only the other fellow who's greedy. <laughs> the world runs on individuals pursuing their separate interests. We'll be back in just a moment. Of course, uh, we are all, to an extent, selfish. Some people more, some people less. But uh, we also have uh, many other motivations. I mean, we have uh, solidarity, we have uh, loyalty, we have sympathy. You know, I mean, all these motivations are real. And we really, I mean, need to design a system that exploits all these complex uh, human motivations. Because uh, if you begin to assume that uh, everyone is uh, selfish, everyone is yeah, uh, only out to promote his or her own self-interest, and then you have to suspect everyone, you have to monitor everyone all the time, and the system will actually grind to a halt. The great achievements of civilization have not come from government bureaus. Einstein didn't construct his theory under order from a, a bureaucrat. Henry Ford didn't revolutionize the automobile industry that way. But Henry Ford is a perfect example that self-interest is far more complex than greed or individualism. In 1914, he single-handedly almost doubled the salaries of his workers and reduced their working hours from nine to eight hours a day. Increasing their salaries, he claimed, will turn workers into consumers. It will help to expand the economy and his car sales. He dreamed that every worker could one day own a Ford car. So how did Adam Smith's nuanced concept of self-interest become transformed over more than 200 years into a global economic system driven by greed? It begins with the separation of Adam Smith I from Adam Smith II and the transformation of the wealth of nations into a science. Excerpts from a six-part, five-hour documentary film series called Capitalism. I'm C.S., and this is Against the Grain on listener-sponsored KPFA. And we are in a fun drive. And before we return to more portions, more audio portions of this five-plus-hour documentary film series called, again, Capitalism, I want to tell you that for a $20 a month pledge or $240 all at once, you can ask for and get this 
film series, this highly acclaimed film series, series of six films called Capitalism. It is a six-part series that examines what capitalism is, how it works, how it originated, and how it developed. The series looks at both the history of the ideas and the social forces that have shaped the capitalist world. You can pledge online at kpfa.org, that is kpfa.org, or you can make your pledge to KPFA. You can donate to KPFA by calling one 800 439 5732. That's 1-800-439-5732. Easily remembered as 1-800-HEY-KPFA. Please consider pledging online. It saves us a bit of money at a time when every dollar counts. I will tell you that there are, as I said, six episodes. Episode one is called Adam Smith, The Birth of the Free Market. Episode two is called The Wealth of Nations, A New Gospel with a question mark. You've been listening to excerpts of that episode. Episode three has a title, Ricardo and Malthus, Did You Say Freedom? And that episode focuses on the work of the economist David Ricardo and the demographer Thomas Malthus. Episode four of this six-part series is called What If Marx Was Right? Stay tuned for portions, audio portions of that episode. Episode five is entitled Keynes versus Hayek, A Fake Debate. And episode six is called Karl Polanyi, The Human Factor. Karl Polanyi being the political economist best known for his book, The Great Transformation. So this film is really six films, six episodes, six standalone films, each consisting of about 50 minutes of content. There are 320 minutes in all for a $20 a month pledge or $240 all at once. You can ask for and get this thank you gift for your pledge of support to KPFA to keep this program and this station going. You can pledge securely by going to kpfa.org, that's kpfa.org, or by calling 1-800-439-5732, 1-800-439-5732, that's 1-800-HEY-KPFA. Let's return now to more of this film series, Capitalism, about Adam Smith and his ideas. of self-interest was the economic equivalent to the law of gravity. It ensured equilibrium. Everyone was free to pursue their self-interest in markets. You would get an equilibrium, optimal equilibrium, which was equivalent to the equilibrium of natural bodies when they were free to, to move as well. So I think the analogy with, with, with physics was very, very strong. What they ignored completely was how human beings actually behave. Sociology and psychology have been very well aware that a lot of behavior is what that you know what economists would call irrational but in fact I don't think that that is the right way of describing it I think it's human self-interest had been enshrined as a law of physics in the 19th century 
In the first part of the 20th century, it evolved in the U.S. into a moral philosophy. I'm challenging the moral code of altruism, the precept that man's moral duty is to live for others. That, in fact, makes man a sacrificial animal. I say that man is entitled to his own happiness and that he must achieve it himself. Uh, now, what can be more important than happiness? Uh, but happiness does not mean simply momentary pleasures or any kind of mindless self-indulgence. Happiness means a profound, guiltless, rational feeling of self-esteem and of pride in one's own achievement. Join me in welcoming Paul Ryan. In the 21st century, Ayn Rand's philosophy of self-interest became part of a political campaign. I grew up reading Ayn Rand, and it taught me quite a bit about who I am and what my value systems are and what my beliefs are. The issue that is under assault, the attack on democratic capitalism, on individualism and freedom in America, is an attack on the moral foundation of America. And Ayn Rand, more than anyone else, did a fantastic job of explaining the morality of capitalism, the morality of individualism. Our rights come from nature and God, not from government. This kind of approach has uh, been so destructive, especially in the last uh, 20, 30 years. We have come to almost glorify self-interest. I mean, uh, <laughs> we, we have come to believe that uh, all the other motivations, all the other emotions, all the other moral values, they are somehow secondary. They are somehow for stupid people. They are, they are somehow for kind of lower beings. That has created this uh, system where people are actually expected to be ignorant of uh, the broader social framework. They are encouraged actually just to look after their own interests and we are living the consequences today. There are two words which over the centuries immortalized Adam Smith and the wealth of nations. They've become shorthand for global economic activities, transforming self-interest into a magical mechanism, an engine for a global economic system. Someone the invisible hand has long been a staple of any economics course. Or offer something better. Yet Adam Smith never wrote it in this context. Adam Smith was concerned uh, that if there was free movement of capital and free import of goods, he said England will suffer because uh, British capitalists will invest abroad and they'll import from abroad and that'll harm the English economy. And Adam Smith then gave an argument, not a very good argument, but his argument was that uh, English investors will prefer to invest in England because of what some called a home bias. They'll have a preference for investing close by and therefore as if by an invisible hand 
uh, England will be saved from the menace of free capital movement and uh, the free import. That's invisible hand. Uh, what, what's that got to do with uh, uh, the Cato Institute or the, or the modern uh, enthusiasm about the uh, free capital flow and uh, you know having uh, uh, U.S. corporations uh, invest in China so they can send stuff back here to sell cheap, uh, exploiting Chinese workers? That's not Adam Smith. Please come to order. Today is our fourth hearing into the ongoing financial crisis. In 2009, in the wake of the financial collapse, Alan Greenspan, the former head of America's central bank, the Federal Reserve Board, was invited back to Washington as the man who more than others promoted deregulation in the name of the invisible hand. Today in this hearing... Dr. Uh, Greenspan, I want to start with you. You have been a staunch advocate for letting markets regulate themselves. And my question for you is simple. Were you wrong? I found a flaw. You found a flaw in the model that defines how the world works, so to speak. In other words, you found that your, your view of the world, your ideology was not... Right. It was that, not that, working. That, that, precisely. No, I, that's precisely the reason I was shocked because I've been going for 40 years or more with very considerable evidence that it was working exceptionally well. Which model was he referring to? Alan Greenspan's intellectual career began with Ayn Rand. He was among her disciples, an enthusiastic believer in her theory of the supremacy of rationality. It is only since the Industrial Revolution, the birth of a free society, the society of capitalism, that there was a new class of men, which is the free producers of material goods, the businessmen, the industrialists. That is the man who lives by means of reason. That is the man who, in his psychoepistemology, is not guided by his immediate perceptions, nor by his emotions, but by logic, by his concepts, by reason. That is the man whom I call the producer. Alan Greenspan was nominated years later by then-President Gerald Ford to head his Council of Economic Advisors. Greenspan paid tribute to his old master and invited her to meet the president. Three years before the financial meltdown, Alan Greenspan visited Kirkcaldy, Adam Smith's birthplace, in commemoration of the great thinker. could hardly imagine, Greenspan said, that today's awesome array of international transactions would produce the relative economic stability that we experience daily if they were not led by some international version of Smith's invisible hand. In recent decades, a vast risk management and pricing system has evolved, combining the best insights of mathematicians and finance experts whole intellectual edifice, however, collapsed in the summer of last year. And so, with magical and mystical words like invisible hand, words which were taken out of context, the intellectual structure of free market was created.
excerpts from a five-hour documentary film series called Capitalism. The film series consists of six, almost one-hour episodes, 320 minutes in all. You get it on DVD, and you can ask for this thank you gift in return for a $20 a month or $240 all at once pledge to KPFA. I'm C.S. Song. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. We return to more excerpts, more audio portions of this highly acclaimed film series called Capitalism. But I want to remind you that you can get the entire documentary film series called Capitalism for a pledge of $20 a month or $240 all at once, kpfa.org or more specifically, kpfa.org slash donate. Reviews of this six-part series have been glowing. One reviewer called the series a captivating epic, a major contribution to economic and social reflection. Another says that it offers a fresh perspective on the events and ideas that set the stage for free markets. Carefully researched and comprehensive, highly recommended. Another reviewer says this six-part series, this six-part film series, Capitalism, brings clarity to confusion, makes complexities accessible, and produces a clear narrative of a system that seems opaque to most people. Again, the film series is called Capitalism, and it consists of six standalone episodes, each a little more than 50 minutes in length, making the entire film package 320 minutes in length. It is ambitious, it is accessible, and it is yours as a thank you gift to you for a pledge of $20 a month to KPFA or $240 all at once kpfa.org is your way to pledge securely online that's kpfa.org or you can call 1-800-439-5732 that's 1-800-439-KPFA or simply 1-800-HEY-KPFA if it's all the same to you please make your pledge online there's a cost savings to kpfa when you do pledge online kpfa dot org or one eight hundred four three nine five seven three two. This film series features uh, many world famous thinkers, analysts, historians, economists, anthropologists, and social critics, including Noam Chomsky, David Graeber, David Harvey, Thomas Piketty. James Kenneth Galbraith, Vandana Shiva, Hajun Chang, Yanus Varoufakis, the former Greek finance minister, many other people are part of and featured in this five-hour documentary film series called Capitalism, 1-800-439-5732 or kpfa.org. We have a variety of thank you gifts at almost any pledge level. You can find a full list of them at kpfa.org. Let's turn now to excerpts from the episode of the film series Capitalism called What If Marx Was Right? This clip addresses Marx in the year 1848. that year, Europe erupted in popular revolts. It was the moment Marx had been waiting for after years of agitating for radical political reforms. A 
specter is haunting Europe, opens the Communist Manifesto. The specter of communism. All the powers of Europe have entered into holy alliance to exercise this specter. Unfortunately for Marx, he was always late in all of his writing. And he didn't publish the Communist Manifesto until after the 1848 revolts had begun. So he couldn't take credit for those. But, and in fact, the Communist Manifesto was sort of lost in the revolution and was only rediscovered later. The story behind the Communist Manifesto did not begin in the 1848 revolution, but in Paris, five years earlier, when Marx met Frederick Engels, the revolutionary son of a wealthy industrialist. They met at a Paris cafe that was known worldwide as being a place where chess masters matched wits. Marx and Engels spent 10 days and 10 nights talking, and at the end of that time, they came out feeling that they were completely in agreement in all things. And the beautiful relationship was born. Meeting Engels was, I think, a, a crucial moment. He met somebody who was actually engaged in uh, working in, in the factories of Manchester and, and, and therefore could talk to, to Marx about the labor process. They are worse slaves, wrote Engels, for they are more sharply watched. And yet it is demanded of them that they shall live like human beings, shall think and feel like men. This they can do only under glowing hatred towards their oppressors, which degrades them as machines. We went to Manchester with Engels for a little trip in 1845. He saw the people who were living in the most degraded conditions who were building this industrial future by working in the factories. He saw the families that had been torn apart by the factory work. The mothers who had to give their infants opium in the morning so that they could go off to work and assume that the children were going to be drugged all day and they wouldn't have to be cared for. For a man like Marx, a social and political theorist and an economic theorist, to go there would be to walk right in the laboratory of humanity, of industrial humanity. While in 1848 the Communist Manifesto was ignored, in 1917 it was the blueprint for the Bolshevik Revolution and its global ambition. Ever hear of Karl Marx? In his mind, communism was born more than a hundred years ago. Marx has now been transformed into a global threat. This is the Kremlin, citadel of Russian communism. Looking closer, we see a public display of giant portraits of communist leaders. Here was a new face, but in the background was an old one, Karl Marx. that people in the 20th century and the 21st century ran away from was Marx of the Communist Manifesto. That's the person that I think capitalist governments and democracies and Western governments held up as, as the, the person who was responsible for communism and its atrocities in the 20th century. So maybe we got it all wrong. We focused so much on the revolutionary message of the Communist Manifesto and ignored the bulk of the document which analyzed the real revolution that Marx wrote about, capitalism.
Ladies and gentlemen, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels were the first to chart the uncompromising, unrelenting, compulsively iconoclastic nature of capitalism. It has pitilessly torn asunder the motley feudal ties that bound man to his natural superiors and has left remaining no other nexus between man and man than naked self-interests, than callous cash payments. how capitalism would crush languages, cultures, traditions, even nations in its wake. In one word, it creates a world after its own image, he wrote. I would like to suggest to you that Marx has rarely seemed more relevant. Marx's stock resurges on a 150-year tip was how the New York Times, the New York Times, marked the 150th anniversary of the publication of the Communist Manifesto. A text which more than any other, as they put it, recognized the unstoppable wealth-creating power of capitalism, predicted it would conquer the world, and warned that this inevitable globalization of national economies and cultures would have divisive and painful consequences. After the publication of the Communist Manifesto, Marx was expelled from continental Europe. He was once again a refugee, this time arriving in London in 1849. Imagine Dean Street in 1850, the year Karl Marx and his family moved into this Soho neighborhood. The streets were teeming with refugees, people who had fled failed revolts on the continent. They arrived in this country, some with only the clothes on their backs, many not even speaking the language. and his family were among the lucky, but all they had, three adults and three children, were two rooms in an attic. And in those cramped quarters, Marx tried to make sense of what he had just experienced and what he saw on the streets around him. And next door, a brand new exhibition opened, right at the time Marx began writing Das Kapital, an exhibition celebrating the achievements of the Industrial Revolution. a triumph of industry. Man's greatest achievements were on display. And so this was the dawn of new era. King capitalism was on the throne. And yet Marx up in his garret was busily, busily scribbling why the system would never work. Yes, it produced wonders, but it would also produce great destruction. Excerpts from a six-part, five-hour documentary film series called Capitalism. This is Against the Grain on listener-supported KPFA. My name is C.S. Song, and uh, we're going to try and fit in a little more from this episode, which is one of the six episodes that comprise this series called Capitalism, this episode called What If Marx Was Right? But I want to tell you again, I want to remind you that for a $20 a month pledge 
or $240 all at once, you can get this six-part, five-hour documentary film series as your thank you gift. All you have to do is ask for it, 1-800-439-5732, 1-800-439-5732, or 1-800-HEY-KPFA, or you can pledge securely online at KPFA. Org. And although we'd be happy to take your pledge either online or over the phone, donating via kpfa.org means 100% of your pledge goes directly to KPFA. So consider pledging online if it's all the same to you, kpfa.org. This is a six-part series consisting of more than five hours of really interesting and important and beautifully produced content that examines what capitalism is and how it works and how it originated and how it developed. It questions the myth of the unfettered free market, explores the nature of debt and commodities, and retraces some of the great economic debates of the last 200 years. It includes on-the-ground footage shot in 22 countries. You'll be exposed to thinkers like David Harvey and Noam Chomsky and David Graeber and Thomas Piketty and Vandana Shiva and James Kenneth Galbraith and Yanis Varoufakis and many other important thinkers and writers and analysts and commentators. It's expertly produced. There are a lot of visuals. I want you to see the visuals. The visuals are a very important part of this film. The filmmakers spent a lot of time on it. Please give as generously as you can. And as I mentioned before, we have a variety of thank you gifts at almost any pledge level. You can find a full list of them at kpfa.org. kpfa.org slash donate is your way of pledging securely online. You can also call 1-800-439-5732. a month or $240 all at once, you get this five-hour documentary film series called Capitalism on DVD. Episode one, episode one is called Adam Smith, The Birth of the Free Market. It makes the case that capitalism is much more complex than the vision that Adam Smith laid out in his book, The Wealth of Nations. Capitalism predates Adam Smith by centuries and took root in the practices of colonialism and the slave trade. Episode two is called The Wealth of Nations, A New Gospel, and it emphasizes that while Adam Smith was both an economist and moral philosopher, his work on morality has been largely forgotten, and that has led to tragic distortions that have shaped our global economic system. Episode three has a title, Ricardo and Malthus, Did You Say Freedom? It makes the argument that the roots of today's global trade agreements lie in the work of the economist David Ricardo and demographer Thomas Malthus. Together, the two would restructure society in the image of market with calamitous consequences. Episode four is called What If Marx Was Right? You've been listening to portions of that. Episode five is entitled Keynes versus Hayek, a fake debate, and it shows that the ideological divide between the philosophies of John Maynard Keynes and Friedrich Hayek has dominated economics for nearly a century and asks, is it time for the pendulum to swing back to Keynes? Now, as you might know, Keynesians ruled the day in the post-World War II economic expansion, but the stagnation of the 1970s fueled the notion that the government 
could not successfully guide the economy. And that's when the Hayekian economist Milton Friedman emerged from obscurity, influencing the neoconservative governments of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, leading to a, a sort of economic revolution whose hallmarks privatization and deregulation continue to be felt today. And episode six is called Karl Polanyi, the human factor. He considers the life of work of Karl Polanyi, the political economist best known for his book, The Great Transformation, in which he argues that industrialization and the first wave of economic globalization led to labor, money, and nature being treated like commodities with disastrous results. KPFA.org, you can pledge securely online at kpfa.org, or you can call 1-800-439-5732, 1-800-439-KPFA. As I mentioned, this series, Capitalism, yours for a $20 a month or $240 all at once pledge to KPFA has garnered a lot of acclaim. One critic called the series masterly and said it is going to revolutionize our vision of the economic world. Another reviewer says this series should not be missed, combines highly educational explanations of concepts, economic history, and contemporary life to create a series of documentaries, each of which is difficult to stop watching. And yet another critic gave the series 10 stars, 10 out of 10, calling it a truly captivating series that delves into history and philosophy, investigates the four corners of the planet, and stimulates the viewer with a re-examination of the basic concepts that define our lives. Please give and give as generously as you can. If you can afford $20 a month or $240 all at once, you can ask for this series, this film series, this five-plus-hour, six-episode film series called Capitalism. KPFA.org is the place to go. KPFA.org slash donate to donate to KPFA or 1-800-439-5732, 1-800-439-5732. We appreciate everyone who pledges online or gives us a call. You can deliver a message to us, whether you call or pledge online. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know you support KPFA and that you support Against the Grain. Here's a bit more from episode four of the film series Capitalism. The episode is called, What If Marx Was Right? I teach Marx, and the question I, I always ask is, what can we learn from Marx, and what do we have to do for ourselves? And I think that's a very important question to ask, because very frequently in the past, people have read their Marx, and then sort of, I don't know, plugged reality into it, and then said, ah, here's the answer. I don't think you can do that. I think there's only a limited set of things we can learn from Marx. Paradoxically, we can't really learn that much about socialism or communism or the future from Marx. We can learn a great deal about how capital works. The wealth of societies in which capital modes of production prevail presents itself as an immense accumulation of commodities. 
Our investigation must therefore begin with the analysis of a commodity. Karl Marx, Das Kapital, Volume 1. is, in the first place, an object outside of us, a thing that by its properties satisfies human wants. Das Kapital. Oh, well. While she gets Tom's breakfast, let's take a closer look at that pan. The iron ore for that pan came from the Masabi Range, so let's start there and see what happened. Maybe it'll give us an idea of just what it is we have. What Marx does in Volume 1 of Capital is have a little section called the Fetishism of Commodities. And what, what it basically means is that our daily experience doesn't actually tell us or give us all the information we need to understand how a system is working. Our daily experience is we take some money and we buy a commodity and we take it home. That's our daily experience. But that doesn't tell you anything about the labor that went into the commodity. It doesn't tell you anything about why it is that this commodity costs twice as much as that commodity. And Marx is kind of saying the market system disguises all of those social relations. Excerpts from the film series Capitalism, consisting of six parts. It is over five hours in length. $20 a month or $240 all at once, please give us a call, make your pledge to KPFA, ask for the thank you gift if you like, get the visuals, get the entire film package. We could obviously only present a small fraction of this five-hour film series. You can pledge online at kpfa.org or you can call one 800 439 5732. That's 1-800-439-5732. 1-800-HEY-KPFA. We'd be happy to take your pledge either way, but pledging online saves us a bit of money at a time when every dollar counts. KPFA.org. Think about what Against the Grain gives to you. Think about what KPFA delivers to you. Think about the fact that we don't take money from corporations or underwriters. 1-800-439-5732 or kpfa.org. I want to thank everyone who's called. You can still keep calling or clicking, visiting our website, kpfa.org. Hancock. So I decided to use use this kind of analytical mind that I have. And I said, okay, wait a minute, let me think about this. I said, is there anything wrong with watermelons? No. Is there anything wrong with the watermelon man? Nope. That was my answer. There was nothing wrong. And so it was right then that I decided. I have to stand up for what I believe in and what is right and what I feel, follow my heart. And there were even some musicians that, you know, when I told them I wrote this song called Watermelon Man, they said, 
You're not gonna call that watermelon man, are you? No, really, it was like it was like that back then. KPFA storytelling for social change. Who am I? Why am I? How should I live? Jeremy Lent's new book, The Web of Meaning, provides suggestions, credible suggestions, and some answers. He mixes insights from the world's great wisdom traditions with modern science to offer a new way of thinking about ourselves. Described by The Guardian as one of the greatest thinkers of our age, Jeremy weaves together the latest research in neuroscience and evolutionary biology with Buddhist, Taoist, and indigenous wisdom. Joanna Monqueras will host Jeremy in a Zoom event Tuesday evening, August 10th, beginning 7 p.m. Full info and the link are on the KPFA website. First page. Just scroll down to it. See you the 10th. You're listening to 94.1 KPFA, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online worldwide at kpfa.org. 